0: if you have your Bibles or devices or whatever you use, find Genesis chapter 29. Let me remind you too, that we have study guides on that top shelf on those little black racks on the way out. Grab a study guide and take that with you so we can continue to process what we feel like God is saying to us. I do not know how many wedding ceremonies that i performed in my career. I, I wish I had cap track, but I, I, I have no idea. I'm sure probably, well, I don't even want to guess. Lots and lots of wedding ceremonies. But I've noticed that the one thing happens at all of them, every single one of them, and it's very subtle, and most of the people in the crowd probably don't even notice. Now, Cassidy's going to get married in September, so she'll be aware of this now. I'm kind of, kind of letting the cat out of the bag a little bit here. But this is very significant. Let me just tell you about it. At the beginning of most of the weddings that I officiate, I'm usually standing at the front as the ceremony begins right beside the bridegroom. Now, I'm almost always whispering in his ear. And it depends on his situation, how well I know him. I'm either saying, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you're not going to fall apart. You, you're, your mind's not going to explode. This is, you're going to make it just fine. Or I'm saying... There's the accent. This is your last chance. Are you sure you want to do this? Depending on how well I know it. But this, the moment that I'm talking about usually happens as the father of the bride, sorry David, brings her down the aisle and the groom that I've been standing next to steps over and she links her arm in his and that's when it happens. It's a little glance. It's a quick, they glance in each other's eyes just for a moment. And, and there's, there's, it's so significant because a great deal of information happens exchange right there at that moment. Like you can see there, they're thinking, can you believe that we're here? We, we're, we're finally, after all this time, we're finally doing this. And it's kind of a, okay, let's go make this happen. Let's go do this. And, and for some of you married couples here, maybe you remember that moment in your ceremony. Well, in our story of Jacob today, we're going we're gonna to learn that relationships are beautiful and hard and complicated. I am marked by so many shotgun moments in my life. And for you new people, you don't understand, but we had a gentleman, um, he's been dead several years now, but we He came and gave his life to Jesus when he was 87 years old. We baptized him when he was 90, and he used to stand right back there at the door and greet people with me like Jacob does now. And I love Shotgun because he was so full of questions. He came to Jesus very late in life. He'd been a tool pusher in the oil field his whole life and just filled with questions about the gospel and what it meant to follow Jesus and and uh, so we just had a ball together. Well, one morning we're standing back there and there was a family that had come in and mom and dad had, had distributed the kids where they belonged. and they came into the worship area and it became very obvious very quickly that they were, they'd had a hard time getting to church on Sunday morning, if you know what I mean. They weren't getting along very well. And, and um, she, she was... Just done. She was very frustrated with him, and at the moment, Shotgun was grieving the death of his wife, Evelyn. And those of you that were here, you remember it was it was so raw for Shotgun for a long time, and he was so tender about that. So when we saw this couple um, quietly fighting, not outwardly, but it was obvious. Shotgun leaned over to me and said, man, I wish I could go up to them and grab them by the lapels and shake them and say, what are you doing? What you're fighting about doesn't matter. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter. Don't you realize what you have? Genesis 29, the the story of Jacob, the conniver. Let me catch you up quickly. He has spent his entire life going after what he thought he wanted. Now, Jacob's friends would have called him ambitious. Jacob's enemies said he was so crooked he had to screw his socks on. That's the kind of guy he was. He swindled his brother out of his birthright. He stole from his father the blessing that belonged to his big brother in conspiracy with a mother, and now he's running for his life. And last week we saw that Jacob was on his way to Haran, and he was in the wilderness, and he laid down, exhausted, and had a dream, or he saw God, and God spoke to him, and reconfirmed the covenant, the covenant of Abraham. And Jacob built an altar and worshipped there, renamed the place Bethel, which means house of God, and became very significant in Jacob's life, and in fact in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, here's the problem. This whole scenario was very hard for us to swallow. Because we would have chosen Esau to be the carrier of the covenant. Esau was the mayor of Beersheba. Esau was strong and athletic and handsome and outgoing, and everybody loved Esau. Jacob was slimy. And yet God chose Jacob as the covenant carrier. Well, maybe God's standards are different than ours. Or maybe God values things that we don't value. Now, if you'll permit me, I'm not going to read the entire chapter in Genesis 29. If you'll bear with me, I'll tell you part of the story and read a text. Everybody in favor, say amen. amen. All right. So now Jacob is about 500 miles into his journey when he arrives on the outskirts of Haran, also known in the Bible as Paddan Aram, and he sees three flocks of sheep that are resting in the afternoon near a well. And he approaches the shepherds there and says, do you know a guy named Laban? And the shepherds say, well, sure we know Laban. In fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel, now. So Jacob waits, and when Rachel finally gets there, she's got this kind of outdoorsy, athletic, she's tan. She's got this shepherdess vibe going on, and Jacob is smitten. In fact, the Bible says he runs up to her weeping and kisses her. What must Rachel be thinking? She doesn't know who this is. All right, this is Genesis 29. Let me back up first. Rachel runs home and grabs Laban, her dad, brings him back. And and Laban embraces Jacob by flesh and blood and brings him into the family and begins to determine right then that he's going to leverage this situation. He sees that Jacob is smitten. How can I work this to my advantage? All right, this is verse 16 in Genesis chapter 29. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, "'I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel.'" Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Ladies all said, (laughs) Oh. Now, we don't know anything about those seven years, except that the Bible says they seem like a moment to Jacob. When the seven years were up, Rachel and Jacob got married. There was all kinds of feasting and singing and dancing. And then they went to the tent for the honeymoon. And when Jacob woke up in the morning, Leah was in his bed. So obviously you were in straight and confronted Laban. What is this? And Laban said, oh, I thought you knew. We can't marry off the younger daughter until the older daughter is married. It's the rules. So Jacob said, I, I can't have this. Laban said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you Rachel too. Go ahead and have your honeymoon with Leah, and I'll give you Rachel too if you'll promise to work another seven years for me. Now remember, deception is the hallmark of this family. Laban's brother is Rebekah, who deceived Isaac. And the Bible says a man reaps what he sows. Well, actually it says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he, but that's another story. So, so Laban says, okay, if you'll make this deal... And I'm going to give you Rachel too. So the Bible says that Jacob agrees. So now he has not one, but two wives. And verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. I wonder how that's going to go. How do you think that's going to work out? There's a lot we can learn here, even if you're not married. But the person that you choose to love is going to turn out to be Leah and Rachel. Now, you're going to love Rachel more because she's the blessing, but you're going to have to learn to love Leah because she's always in there, and she represents the struggle. But most of us, here's the issue, most of us are going to work hard all of our lives to turn Leah into Rachel. Several years ago, we had a... a, a, young man and a young lady in our college group over in the old building and they started dating and they came to me and they decided they wanted to get married. And I always try to do premarital counseling with couples that I agree to marry and it didn't take long to realize that they weren't going to make it. And I told them that. I said, you got no business getting married. And they said, no, it's all good. We're in love. Everything's going to be fine. little side note here. When you're in a romantic relationship, really any kind of relationship, but especially a romantic relationship, you're generally completely happy with 95% of what your mate brings. But there's 5% that bothers you a little bit. And rather than deal with that, we tend to rationalize. Well, yeah, he's got a bit of a temper, but I need more passion in my life. Or, yeah, she's a little too connected to her mom, but I think that's a good basis for a family. And She says she's ready to break break feet. She's connected to her mom. (laughs) So the thing is, you have a plan, and you think everything's going to be okay, and maybe it'll be okay if you just ignore it because your plan is to turn Leah into Rachel. Well, back to this couple that I mentioned earlier. Now, a lot of pastors see red flags in the counseling area and they decide they're just not going to perform the ceremony. And I've done that before. I've turned couples away. But usually, especially if it's a couple in my fellowship... I go ahead and marry them because I'd rather have a pastor relationship with them when times get hard, and it usually does. So sure enough, about two years in, this couple is back in my office again. They're no longer in love with each other. Now they want to kill each other. They don't see any way that this marriage can possibly survive, and it doesn't take very long into our conversation before I heard him say, see, that's what you always do. That's just how you are. And I thought to myself, married two years and already know everything there is to know about each other. And I had an idea. I remember that just a few months before, we had had a banquet. I think it was a missions banquet here at the church. And Jason and I were sitting at a table with an older couple, married like 50 years. And we were having a great time just laughing. They were just delightful. And he made an offhanded comment, something like, you know, I think I'd like to... in Europe or something. I can't remember what it was. But what struck me was she got this look of surprise on her face, and she said to him, I never knew that about you. And I thought, here's a couple married 50 years, still learning about each other, still open to discovery, and yet this couple that's married two years already has each other completely figured out. So I thought, here's a great idea. I'll put this couple that's married two years... With this couple that's married 50 years and let them be a mentor to them and help them kind of walk things out in life. That's what the church is for, right? So that's what we did. And it didn't work. I wish I had a happy ending for you, but they still got a divorce. Sorry. I don't want to lie. All right, get back with me. Don't miss my point. The Bible says we're supposed to love each other, even our enemies. We're supposed to give ourselves in love, yet we resist that. And the truth is, we are very slow to give ourselves away in a loving relationship. Why? Because it's risky. And we all have lots of good reasons why we're slow to love. You had an ex run out on you. You had a friend who said they would always be there for you, and then when you needed them, they weren't. You had someone who took advantage of your kindness, and so now you've turned inward... And you're slow to give yourselves away. But Scripture still commands us to love, doesn't it? So here's the, doesn't it? Say yes. yes. The foundation or the basis upon which we give ourselves away in love is that we have a Savior who gave himself away in love for us. Now here's the thing. We've only got one Savior and you're not him. And the one you're looking to in a loving relationship, that person is not him either. But yet we think we can turn to a relationship and it'll fix our loneliness or it'll make us feel better about ourselves or it'll heal our hurts, but only your Savior can do that. No one else can. So the basis by which we love other people is the basis upon which Jesus has poured out his love in our hearts. And the truth is you are never going to allow yourself really to love someone else until you allow yourself to rest in the love of God. There's another very difficult lesson I've learned as a pastor. It's that the people that are the hardest to love are the ones that need love the most. Let me say that again. Generally, the people that are most needing of love are the ones that are hardest to love. We've had people come here. I wish that were not true. I wish I didn't have to tell you this story, but it's in my notes, so I have to tell you. We've had people come here and they say, I've been to five different churches and none of them would accept me. Maybe you're the problem? I didn't say that. So there's this, all these other churches, that are just filled with hypocrites. And what I say is, well, these are great people at Covenant Life Assembly, and I'm sure that you'll be welcomed here and you'll make friends here. What I want to say is, you know, First Baptist Church is right up the street, and I hear they're really good about accepting people. Because the people that are hardest to love are the ones that need love the most. Now, I'm not saying this difficult person doesn't deserve to be loved. They do. In fact, because they're demonstrating such bitterness that tells me they need love desperately. And we know that God loves them. But until they look to him and not other broken people, they'll never get their brokenness healed. Now, I know that nobody in this room this morning is struggling with bitterness. I know there's nobody here that's, that's holding on to unforgiveness in your heart. But can I go ahead and show you the formula in Scripture anyway, even though you don't need it? This is Ephesians 4. Verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay, two mandates here, two instructions. Number one, forgive others. All right, if forgiveness is needed, we've got to assume that an offense has been committed. Are you with me? If we're supposed to forgive, we assume there's been a misdeed or an offense. But the truth is, People are jerks. And some people are really hard to forgive. True? Come on! But we don't forgive based on forgivability. The Bible says right there, we forgive based on what? The way that Jesus, God forgave us in Jesus, right? So if you got forgiveness, they get forgiveness. So the mandate number one is we forgive others. Mandate number two is we forgive ourselves. Did you notice right there it says that Christ forgave, past tense, he forgave you? So if Jesus forgave me, why do I struggle forgiving myself? But we do. And I'm telling you again that the scriptural remedy for struggling to forgive ourselves is confession. Now listen, Confession is not reciting our list of sins. Confession is just telling the truth. We talked about it a couple weeks ago with besetting sins. Identifying my sin and acknowledging my sin and then putting away. Lord, I'm weak in this area. Lord, this is a struggle for me. And I just want to let you know that this is hard for me. Now you might say, well, Randy, doesn't he already know? Yeah, but you're not confessing for him. You're confessing for you. It's to heal you. Just be real. Tell the truth. That's what confession is. This is way better than your acting. (laughs) I love the story of Jonathan and David. This, This is a relationship that should never have happened, but they became fast friends. Jonathan was born in privilege in the palace with the best of everything. He had servants. He had the best education you could possibly imagine. David was was raised out in the wilderness with sheep and a harp, apparently, because he wrote songs. But the Bible says not long after David killed Goliath, they met. And let me also tell you that Jonathan was an awesome warrior. He had taken on a whole outpost of I'll post the Philistines on his own, 1 Samuel 14. But the Bible says that when Jonathan and David met, they became instant friends. This is 1 Samuel 18.1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now this Hebrew word that's translated one in spirit in English is talking about a deep connection, a soul to soul connection. In the Hebrew thought, soul was the center of the being. So here, Jonathan and David connecting on a soul level. Now, modern commentators have suggested that David and Jonathan were gay. Why? Because one in spirit relationships are incredibly rare, especially among men. I'm sorry, but it's true. Because in our world, The goal is individual attainment. I want to make a mark. I've got to look out for number one. I've got to take care of me. And social media in our generation has so played into this narrative. I saw, on social media in fact, I saw a term this last week that I'd never heard before and it scared me. It called kids of these days, my grandchildren's age, it calls them screen natives. And the point is, they've never grown up without a screen in their face. Well, you know what? They're born to look people in the eye, not a screen. So what is it costing the next generation? They don't know how to communicate face to face. But Scripture says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So what I'm trying to tell you is we've got to take the risk. We've got to reach out. We've got to find a way to love others deeply. Look, I know you get tired of hearing about it, but I can't even imagine my life without my spiritual support group. These are guys that know me completely and they still love me. And and often we look each other in the eye. We didn't plan this, and it's kind of weird even to me to this day after more than 25 years. But regularly, we look each other in the eye, and I say, I love you. And I know that you love me, and I'm so grateful. And they say the same thing. And every time that happens, it just gets me because I realize how blessed I am. One in spirit relationships. And the truth is, you see couples that have been married a long time, they have the same thing. They remember the glance at the altar and the implicit commitment that lies there and even though now they look way different here's the thing they don't love each other in spite of the way they look couples that have been married a long time have learned to love the flaws (laughs) if you don't try to turn Leah into Rachel the flaws become beautiful And they become cherished. And that's what God had in mind. And this type of commitment doesn't just fall in your lap. It's built on a foundation of confession, truth-telling. And it's got to be cultivated and protected and nurtured. The point is, Rachel and Leah are both in there. And you got to learn to love both of them. And when it gets hard, you forgive and you rest in God's love. All right. Let me close with this. I want you to understand... This is not a self-help sermon. I don't know about you, but I'm beyond help. But I'm not, this is not some feel-good, this is how to have a better marriage sermon. What this is, is that we have been commissioned by God to be the church in here and to impact our world out there, right? For the sake of the kingdom, we Christ followers are commanded by God to love other people, and it's hard And it's scary, and I know that. And it's much, much easier just to withdraw to our safe space. It's much easier just to be okay with the friends that I already have. It's it's easier not to risk loving other people, right? Well, Moses, who's the guy that wrote Genesis, uses a very puzzling phrase that we read earlier. I want you to look at it with me again. He said, Leah had weak eyes, and I didn't know what that meant, and I know that you needed me to know what that meant. So I went and looked it up in the original language, and the Hebrew word is rach, and here's the problem. That Hebrew word has two meanings. One is is delicate or fragile or somehow substandard, and the other meaning for that word weak is lovely and engaging. Now, there's a significant difference between substandard and lovely, right? But when you look at the text, it can be interpreted either way. And I think the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write it that way. I think that's what God wanted us to get. Because it could have been when Jacob looked at Leah, he could have interpreted that either way as well. And here's the point. That person in your life is not perfect. She is Rachel and Leah. She is Jacob, or he is Jacob and Esau. The question is, what do you see? Lovely or weak? Honorable or deplorable? Acceptable or unacceptable? And that's an immense amount of power to give to you, but you have to choose. It's up to you to choose to every relationship in your life. What are you going to see? weak, or lovely. And I'm just telling you the mandate that we've been given by God is to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have searched my heart before I stepped up here this morning trying to ascertain whether there is a little pocket of bitterness somewhere. I'm searching my heart, Father, to see if I'm holding on to some slight or some offense or some misdeed. Someone said to me something in passing. Maybe they were deliberately being hateful. Maybe they had no idea at all. But how I respond is the question. Am I... Allowing that to dwell in my heart. Where the book of Hebrews says a root of bitterness could grow up and affect all my relationships. Is it possible, Father, that there's something in me that I've not forgiven? And when I think about how much I'm forgiven, how you forgave me. It cost the blood of your son on the cross to purchase my forgiveness. And now that I wouldn't forgive someone else that I would hold on to unforgiveness and allow that to become bitterness against someone else? Jesus, please forgive me.